Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Nick Spears. Uh, he's the author of this book, uh, You're a Leader Now What? Through the path that I've uh, especially for new leaders, young leaders. Um, he's also a fan of the Leadership Project podcast uh, and created the site uh, nickspears.com. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Richard. Uh, delighted to be here and looking forward to our conversation today. Right. And you're joining us from uh, a, the Philippines, is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So my, my business, the Leadership Project, is based out of Singapore. So it's incorporated there. We do most of our business out of Singapore, but it's a very international business. But we worked out that we could do it from anywhere. So my wife and I looked around and we thought about different options of where we would live. And here we are in the Philippines. Somewhere I've never visited. Actually, I must get that. Oh, you should. Oh, you should. Uh, Amazing country, amazing people, very welcoming, uh, beautiful countryside. Uh, There's there's a lot. Uh, Manila is a bit of a rat race. It's very busy and congested. Get outside Manila. It's a beautiful country. And is that where you are? You out in the more in the countryside? Yeah, we're in a, a place called Cavite. So we're about an hour south of Manila. And if I look out my window, my nearest neighbor is like, couple of hundred meters away and we've got trees and grass and you know uh we're within reach of uh, a very urbanized development being manila but we're that far out that we we barely even notice any noise or anything out here so we've got a good quality of life very much enjoying it great okay well let's um yeah maybe let's start with what, what bit of your background a bit of your backstory story and then how you got into writing a book for the movie? Yeah, sure. So it is a bit of a long story, so I'll try and do it a little bit shorter. So I was an executive for 30 years. Well, I wasn't always at the executive ranks, but I had a 30-year corporate career, 15 years in defense aerospace, and then 15 years in what we call urban mobility. And in that urban mobility arena, I had this vision of creating a world where people could move freely around their cities without delays, without congestion, and ultimately without stress. And that word stress is going to become very important in a moment. So I was spending all of my time and devoting all of my efforts to de-stressing the way someone commuted to and from work. And then it dawned on me one day when I was looking at research from organizations like Gallup, who would tell us that only 20% of people in the world, Richard, truly love their job and like their boss. 20%. So we're spending up to one third of our lives in these workspaces that either don't inspire us or worse still, completely stress us out. So the word stress comes back. So I spent 15 years of my life trying to de-stress the way someone commuted to and from work only to discover and to start deeply researching that it was actually for most people, the stressful part was within the four walls. Of that, mm, organis- mm. of that organization and their job. So that stemmed a whole bunch of things. So I started the podcast to have these deep conversations with leaders about rethinking and challenging what it means to be a leader. I went and did my coaching certification uh, through the International Coaching Federation and a Singapore-based uh, entity called Coach Masters Academy, global business, wonderful business, uh, Dr. Ben Co. And the more and more I researched and got into this field of leadership and coaching and rethinking what it means to be a leader, the more I found myself in a flow state. And I I found that I was completely absorbed. I would completely lose track of time. Anytime I was talking to someone about leadership, coaching them about leadership, teaching leadership, et cetera. So that's what inspired the book. And uh, it's going to be the first of many books I decided that to reach an audience and get out there with a message that we need to rethink the way that we think leadership should be done and break the mold, I decided to start with the first time leader. So the first book is designed around that leader that's got the tap on the shoulder, they've been told they're a leader and they don't know where to go. And we can probably talk more about that as we as we unpack the book. Yeah. Then, then in January, January this year, that's when I started the Leadership Project as a business. So I left corporate world and now the Leadership Project is a leadership academy. It's got the coaching practice and we also do high performance team workshops. But it's all driven by this desire to give people back quality of life in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And 
And if people are having this stressful, awful time at work where they get there after their commute, why, why do you believe it's leadership? Why choose that as the aspect to focus on in terms of people improving people's work experience? Yeah, great question. So I believe that it is at the root of it is leadership. And because what people are looking for when you get out there and you really talk to people about what it is that stresses them out about their, their workplace, their, it starts with things like they want purpose and meaning. So they want to feel like what they do when they turn up every day actually has some kind of purpose, has some kind of meaningful impact on the world. And it's a leader's role to provide people that clarity of purpose and meaning. They want to feel that they're in a workplace where their opinions are heard, where they have a voice and that that voice is listened to, where their opinions are valued. And they want to feel like they matter. And it all comes down to being treated with respect and given the right environment where they can flourish. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the majority of horrible bosses out there, and unfortunately there's many of them, the majority of horrible bosses out there don't purposely turn up to make their workers' life stressful. But without a clear guidance on what it means to be a leader, they don't know that that's their job. It's, it's their job to give that purpose and meaning. It's their job to create the environment where voices can be heard and, and opinions valued. And it's their job to take care of their team and make sure that their team feel that they matter. And they end up spending a lot of time doing things like telling people what to do, not inspiring them, telling people what to do. and and a vacuum of communication and all kinds of things that then make the person feel devalued. And they start getting to the point where they're turning up to work just to do the bare minimum that will allow them to get their pay- paycheck. Or worse still, in some cases, they're turning up to work to get that paycheck and then they're spending work time looking for the next job. And we're seeing that in the great resignation, a huge revolving door where people are always searching. And the searching that they're looking for is a place that has purpose and meaning, a place where they feel that they belong, and a place where they can do work that it feels to them that they matter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what's, I suppose, what's the response of new leaders when they come into your courses or, or they begin coaching with you um, to this message? Yeah, it resonates strongly with them when they hear it, but it's, getting them to hear it is the key because the, usually no one has actually sat them down and told them this. So a new leader usually goes through a roller coaster of emotions, Richard, right? They have the euphoric highs that they've finally been recognized for being great at what they do. They might be an amazing digital marketer, or a software engineer, a nurse, whatever it is they practice, and they've been really good at it. And they get the tap on the shoulder and they feel amazing. Oh, I'm, I've been promoted. I'm now going to be a team leader or a manager or whatever the case may be. And they'll go around and they'll tell everyone that will listen and probably some that don't want to hear it either, but they'll tell everyone, I'm, I've been promoted, this is amazing. And then comes the thud of anxiety. The thud of anxiety when they realize that no one has actually shown them what it means to be a leader. And then they go through this kind of, kind of a whole deluge of different activities. They they end up in a situation where they haven't been shown what to do. So they start looking at mimicking the behavior of those before them. And when we're in an environment where the majority of people are not good leaders, they're just mimicking the behavior of poor leaders before them. And they start picking up bad habits from the, from the outset. Or they start going into what I call the deluge of firsts. They start going around and the very first time that they've ever had to give someone constructive feedback, which is really hard. Mm. to do performance management for the first time. Go into a job interview where they're the person that's doing the interviewing instead of being the interviewee. And they've never done it before. And they feel lost. And that's when imposter syndrome starts kicking in and their anxiety start taking over. They start questioning, is leadership really for me? Why would anyone follow me? And they start really devaluing themselves. Mm. So when they hear this message, about what leadership is really about. It's about how they relate to other human beings. It's about having a learning mindset and a growth mindset. That it's about emotional intelligence. It's about giving people purpose and meaning. It's about how well you communicate, both listening and the way that you express yourself. It's about creating an amazing culture where everyone feels that they belong 
and feels that they have a purpose and meaning what they do, all of these things start clicking for them where they go, yeah, this is what I've been looking for. They start seeing the signs of that's the leader I wish I always had. And then I've got them. I've got them convinced and they're willing to go out and try a different approach to leadership than what they've seen before. Mm. And, and what about those who hear all this and they're like, oh, this all just sounds a bit too fluffy. And, you know, what are you going, you know, this is never going to get anything done, Mick. You know, I'm about results. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, if I need my people to, to perform and I need to tell them what to do in order to have that happen, then, uh, you know, that's what I need to do. Like, do you have those characters and then how do you handle that? Yeah. Yeah, you, you do. You have, you have some really operationally focused people that believe that their job is to direct everything and just tell people what to do and, and they're not doing their job unless they lead from the front and they've got to be the smartest person in the room and all this kind of stuff. And the secret to that is emotion. It's usually very easy to tap in and find some experience that they've had where they've had a horrible boss that has done all of those things that we're talking about. And to tap in, I have this exercise that I do, it's in the book too, mm. called the Amalgam Leader, where I get people to think about and picture all of the great bosses they've had, because there are great bosses out there, those ones that inspire us and motivate us and lead us towards a worthy cause. I get them to think about those leaders that they've had and what they did, what specifically they did that they liked about them. And then I get them to think about the horrible bosses the bosses that made them feel less than valued, that demotivated them, or worse still, completely stressed them out. And what was it about that that they did? And these common threads start appearing for them. And I don't ask them to go and mimic any of those. I ask them to create their own picture. So the amalgam leader is to pick the attributes that they loved about those bosses that they did like, to remember the lessons of the bosses that treated them uh, poorly, and then develop their own picture of what they believe a great leader looks like, and then bring their authentic self to it, bring their own flavor, their own personality. And then when you go through that exercise, even the ones that think, no, no, the, the, the hard way is the right way, and you've got to be directorial, etc., they usually get it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because you're not really giving them a model to react against. You're telling them, or inviting them to create their own model, right? So it's their creation. Exactly. And then they take great ownership of that, right? They've been through a journey of self-awareness, a journey of self-discovery, and they come out there and feeling that they own this model of leadership and they're going to become the leader that they want to become, not some model of some alpha-style leader that they've had in the past where they think, oh, that's what leadership is. Right. Um, and, and, and I guess, I guess the question then is, is there, do you ever find that there is a case for, as you described the alpha leadership, um, moments of crisis or is, are there scenarios where that makes sense or are, are, you, mm. are you, is your research finding that no, in pretty much all situations, th- these, these set of values we've laid out are, are most important. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it a, a different way. I, I don't think there's any place for the alpha style leadership in the future. It, it's here at the moment. And unfortunately, some of those leaders get looked up to and, and heralded and, and the like. There is a moment in time for decisiveness. It could be a time pressure. It could be a crisis. But that during that moment of decisiveness, the, the really amazing and great leaders still surround themselves that have different perspectives and different viewpoints of what's going on. And they're listening intently. They're listening with an open mind. They're listening with an open heart. They're listening with an open will. And the very clever ones are able to bring that together very quickly and go, okay, clearly this is the course that we need to go. And they do go into a little bit of a decisiveness and and a direction at that point, but it's not without pausing to very quickly collect viewpoints from people around them that have got different experiences, different diverse backgrounds that can actually give them different perspectives of the same situation. Boss, have you considered this? Boss, have you considered that? And they're very quickly processing. But in a crisis situation, then there is a moment where they do have to stand up. It could be standing up in front of a press conference and saying, this is the direction I'm taking the company and here's why. 
but in the back room before they stood on that podium, they've actually given their team a good deep listening to. Right. <laughs> a good deep listening to. That's the last time I've heard it, but yeah, that makes sense. And you, you laid out and you lay out in the book these, these four levels of listening and you, you talked about them there. Could you just, just spin through those and give a bit of flavour on each of those? Yeah, I've got to give credit here to Otto Sharma. So Otto Sharma from MIT, he developed a model called Theory U. And you have these moments in your career where you read something and the world starts beginning to make sense and you can really get to it. And I think this deep listening one is something that very few people have gotten onto yet. So I'd love to share it with your audience. Most people understand what active listening uh, is. Not everyone's good at it, but most people get the concept of active listening which is being in the moment, like I'm here with you, Richard, now, and you're the most important person in my world right now. I'm giving you my full attention. I'm making sure that I'm listening to you carefully, making sure I'm processing what you're saying, and I'm giving you acknowledgements along the way. Yeah, I get it. I've, I understood your question, and, and we're in a, in a great dialogue, right? That's active listening. And there's all kinds of ways that you can do that. You can paraphrase back to make sure that you got it. You test assumptions, all kinds of things. Deep listening is, is a new perspective, right? So most people, when it comes to deep listening, are stuck at level one. And level one is when you're just listening to things that you already know, things that validate viewpoints that you've already developed in your mind. It can even go as far as only listening to what you want to hear. And you've got this unconscious bias that's going on. And it can be confirmation bias as well where you're petitioning information that's coming into your head and you're only listening and agreeing to the things that confirm your viewpoint and you're ignoring or blocking any contrary view. And I've got to say it, politics is classic for this. Most people vote on party lines and when they get political information in, they've got this filter that they only really listen to the things that confirm some decision that they've already made. So yeah, it's, it's like it, I'm just thinking yeah. of that moment when you're speaking to somebody and they're like, yeah, I totally agree with you, Richard. Absolutely. That's exactly what I think. And then you, you come away from it. And you're like, I don't, <laughs> I don't really think you agree with me. Because <laughs> when they sum it up and talk about what they might want to do next, it's like, well, hang on, that doesn't reflect what it is I've just told uh, you. So it's like right. this, this sophisticated playback that in the moment that has you kind of nodding with them. And then afterwards, you're like, no, no. Oh, spot, spot on, Richard. I love that that picture that you just painted. And that's what can exactly happen. Two people can have a conversation where they seem like they're agreeing with everything, but they both, or, or at least one of them, have gone into the conversation with a preconceived idea about what is true and what is real. And they've walked away from that conversation with the same perspective that hasn't shifted one iota exactly. because they only heard the things that confirm their belief. Right. So, so what Otto talks about in his theory used to get beyond that is we start opening our mind. So level two listening is listening with an open mind and genuinely having empathy for the other person that is sharing their, their thoughts. Cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy does not mean that you have to agree with them, but you've taken the time to understand their viewpoint and why they've formed that viewpoint. Emotional empathy which is getting onto level three. We'll get to that in a moment. But you're understanding the emotions of what might have led them to where they're at in their perspective. And uh, sometimes empathic concern if, there, if there's an issue around compassion or whatever the case may be. But to get to listening with an open mind, you start realizing that with every situation, your perspective is only your perspective and their perspective is their perspective. And if you start listening to that, you get a much richer understanding of what's actually going on in the world around you. Level three is then listening with an open heart. And that is the understanding that all of us, Richard, are emotional creatures. We make decisions emotionally and we justify them rationally. And if we don't understand the emotion of what's going on in a room or in a situation, we still don't have the richness of information for us to be able to do something that makes sense. So listening with an open heart. And then level four is just amazing. It's listening with an open will. This is where you let go completely of what you think you already know. And you start imagining a new reality. And this is when you can bring a team together that the team's thought processes and their ability to bring 
their own individual strengths and perspectives to the table combined with someone else's strengths ends up co-creating something that didn't exist before that meeting mm. happened. Mm. And it's holding space for each other to go, okay, you know something that I don't know and I need to really hold space for you and really listen to it. Then I'm going to share with you what I know that maybe you don't know. And when we add the two together, one plus one equals three. Co-creation of something beyond the sum of its parts. And I think most leaders live in level one. Some better leaders start understanding perspectives and empathy. They get to level two and level three. Then high-performance teams have a leader that's able to hold space for everyone and co-create something that is the sum of all of the amazing people that they have in the room. We pay people lots of money, Richard. I, I know some people will say, oh, I wish I got paid more, et cetera. But generally, we, we bring these people into our organizations and we pay them high salaries for the skills, knowledges, and knowledge and experience that they bring to the table. Why wouldn't we damn listen to them, right? So, so if you're going to pay <laughs> someone to be in the room, listen to them. They've got a perspective and you need to hear it. So yeah, yeah that's, the, that's the four levels of, of deep listening. Yeah, yeah. Is that the synonymous with, I've, I've also heard it termed generative listening when you're, uh, when you're generating yeah. possibility from yeah. what you've just, you've just heard. And, uh, yeah, and Otto Sharma coined the term generative listening as well. Okay, so it's, yeah, it's, that was from I, Otto Sharma. Right. I, yeah. yeah, identical, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 makes, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and what have you found in terms of helping, helping leaders to build that capability? You know, what, what are the ways in which you've helped them do that? Yeah, so the bigger one is things like teaching them to be the last one to speak in the room, to hold that space, to provide a psychologically safe environment where people feel that they can share their opinions and share their viewpoints, share their ideas without fear or minimal fear of judgment and retribution. So we want an environment that has high candor and low fear where everyone feels that they can speak up and speak their mind. So it's creating that environment. And to do so, to teach them how to ask better questions. So instead of going into your next team meeting and go in there and go, right, team, this is what we need to do this week. Priorities are one, two, three. Jim, you're going to do this. Sally, you're going to do this, etc. Just go into the meeting and go, hey, team, what do you think our number one priority is this week? And then say nothing. And you'll be surprised how often they already know. They already know what needs to happen. Or they might have a new perspective that enriches what you thought before the meeting and give them a good damn listening to, right? So give that them... That phrase again, the, I, I love yeah. it. <laughs> right, so give them the ability. And now, what are you doing, Richard? You're empowering them. You're empowering them that they feel part of the solution, not just being told what to do. People don't like being told what to do. This, this all comes down to the five fundamental needs of human beings with the fifth one is being freedom of choice and freedom from oppression. People want to feel that they're holding the steering wheel of their own life and that they are making those choices. Even when they follow you as a leader, they want to feel like they made a conscious choice to follow you. And the way you do that is empowering them by giving them a voice. Mm. So we have a thing that I talk about. I, I borrowed this one from Liz Wiseman, huge fan of Liz. It's called the extreme question experiment. I teach my leaders for at least one meeting, if not do it for an entire day, go into that meeting and ask nothing but questions. And you're going to be surprised by the results you get. Hey team, what do you think the highest priority is this week? Hmm. And why do you think that is important? And what positive impact might happen if we can do that? Just ask questions. And then yeah. the team sit up in their chairs and they start taking ownership of what's going on in the world and they go, oh, well, the boss really wants to know what I think. This is so cool. And then you start creating that environment that we're talking about and now you're rewarding the people that speak up. You reward and celebrate them. And you know, every time someone challenges you even, oh, boss, I'm not, not sure about that. Thank you so much for calling me on it. What, what is it about the, our current situation that's not sitting well with you? Encouraging them to speak up. Mm. Yeah. 
question and encourage. Yeah. And, and acknowledge, right? That thank them. Like, so you're demonstrating openly. I value the fact you called me on this, right? Yeah. 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 Cool. yeah. It reminds me a little bit. So we had a, a guest on this podcast, Henry Stewart, who wrote the happiness manifesto from the UK. And he has a, another experiment, which has a similar flavor where he, he challenges leaders to not make a decision for three months. <laughs> See if you can go uh-huh. an entire three months without making a single decision. It doesn't focus on the question, but that's going to lead you. If you can't make decisions, what else are you going to do, right? You get, you're probably going to be asking a lot of questions. Yeah. And one, one of the keys can be because um, there's, there's influence and there's manipulation. So the careful one is that you don't go into the meeting with a presupposed idea as to, okay, this is how this is going to pan out. And I'm just going to ask clever questions that get yeah, I'm going to work in. the room to get them yeah, to tell, me, work what, the room what, to tell me what I want to hear, right? Yeah. So you do need to make sure you're going in with an open mind. When, so ask the question. They may very well repeat back to you exactly what you had in your mind, right? And just get on with it. But make sure you, that wasn't from a source of manipulation. It needs to be from a source of inspiration and influence, not, not manipulation. Yeah. And I can and imagine that's an art that you can train into yourself over time, right? Because like, it's about continuing, like getting hooked, catching yourself, getting hooked on your own preconceived idea, letting it yeah. go and like re, refocusing on the person who speaks. And, and the key there is listening without judgment and asking questions that don't have a tone of judgment. So I used an example before. Hmm, what positive impact might happen if we're able to do that? It's not... Mm an accusation that's not a it's not an in, interrogation it's a very open question that has no judgment attached to it yeah. if you find yourself going oh why do you think that that's not a good question that's a that's a inquisition right why do you yeah. think that it's got an element of judgment in the question right and you're kind of inviting them to judge their own process so you're you're naturally kind of yeah, yeah, closing it down on you. Yeah, it reminds me a little yeah. bit. Have you come across clean language? Yeah, it's like clean language, exactly. Right, like that, that, that yes. similar yeah. discipline around keeping yeah. the, the question neutral and open. Yes, very good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, um, it's interesting how a lot of these, there's a sort of cross percolation. It's like we're in a zeitgeist somehow of, um, yeah, I guess m- modes of human interaction. That's um, it, yeah. And a lot of the, you know, various thinkers are, are running on but, similar lines. And the other, the other one that comes with clean language is then conversational intelligence. And this is, mm. this is one where this can be an eye-opener for many leaders as well. And they can, they can actually start getting self-conscious about this. So they'll start catching themselves on some of the key words. So I, I teach them to watch out for some traps, right? So great leaders, they don't use the word I very often. They use the word we. Mm. They use the words we. So when, when they do use the word I, is when they're talking about their, their vision, their values and beliefs, and if they're owning up to a mistake that they made. The rest of the time they use we, right? So it's very collective and brings people along in a co-creative uh, world. But I'll give you some examples of the ones that they get very conscious about. The word actually. And I see this all the time. A leader that will go into a meeting and someone will pop up with an idea and the leader will say, actually, that's a really good idea. And that sounds innocent enough, Richard, but how that can be interpreted is that's a really good idea. I'm just really surprised it came from you. So you need to be careful with the language that you're using. Yeah. 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 And uh, but uh, just as you say that, I am thinking about the leaders who use that word we, and you're thinking, <laughs> you don't mean we. You're, you're talking about I- you. Yeah. It's got to be authentic. It's, it's got to be, be authentic. authentic. And you yeah. talk about authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. Mm. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. So, yeah, come back again to that model because I like that little section in the book where you, it's, it's gla- Glasser, right? Or that, that, yeah. that has William those. Glasser. Glasser. Yeah, William Glasser. Glasser. Yeah. yeah, Glasser. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could, could you just talk through that? Because it, it was another, because I, I, I was familiar with, um, oh, what's the other one? The hierarchy of Maslow. Maslow's um, but the Maslow, needs, sorry, yeah. yeah so this seemed um, somehow simpler and, and, and just gave me a new perspective. I, I wonder if you could run through it for our listeners. Yeah, now. this one's really good. So Glasser, it's a, it's a funny, funny side story. Glasser is best known for this thing called Glasser's Pyramid, which he actually never created. That was someone doing an extrapolation of his work, and it was about 
the power of experiential learning that, you know, people don't necessarily rem- remember what they read. They don't remember what they hear. They don't remember what they see, but they do remember what they experience for themselves, what they discover for themselves, etc. And there's elements of truth in Glass's work that is that he just never built the pyramid. But what he did build was what's called choice theory. And choice theory is, has got some similarities to Maslow's, but it makes more sense to me. And it has this hierarchy of five human fundamental needs. And it starts with survival. Survival is our number one role. And that is why things like our, our root, root or reptilian brain can dominate our thinking if we feel that we're in any kind of danger. And that's when we get into fight, flight or freeze. So survival is our number one. Number two is our need for love and belonging. And this one's really powerful. And this can end up in a situation of things like peer pressure, social conformity, et cetera. And I use some great examples in the book of where someone's need for love and belonging, to feel that they belong to the group around them, to feel included, sometimes becomes more important than the need to be right. And they end up doing things that maybe portray their own personal values and beliefs. I'm talking about things like hazing of new employees or you know, some really inappropriate behaviors at other times, at, at some times. Other times, it's a little bit more innocent. It'll be a, a company culture where people say, oh, that's why we always do it here. But no one stopped and questioned why. But they do it because they want this love and belonging. Number three is power. And there's an innocent explanation of power and there's a sinister explanation of power. On the innocent side, the need for power is the need to matter, to feel like as a human being, I matter. I matter to someone else, at least one other human being, maybe more. On the sinister end, and unfortunately, human beings are one of the only ones that really do this, it's that want to have influence, undue influence over someone else to control them. Control is a better word here. So unfortunately, that is one of our needs, and and I I much prefer to see people that are making sure that they matter, not that they control someone else. The mattering to someone else means that you serve them. Controlling someone else, it means that you're controlling, and that's, that's not welcome. Uh, number four is the need for fun, which is great, right? So sometimes we forget that. We get in our serious jobs, and uh, we have our mortgages and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes we forget to have fun along the way. And the fifth one is freedom, and that's freedom of choice and freedom from oppression. And this is really important. This is why I talk about everyone wants to hold the steering wheel of their own life. They want to feel like they made their own choices, not that you told them what to do, but that you as a leader inspired them into meaningful action around a worthy cause. Not that you told them what to do, that you inspired them to do it. And if everyone like thinks about Glass's choice theory and any situation you end up in the workplace and you see some behavior, that's not sitting well with you. It's erratic or whatever. Test it. Is this coming from survival? Is this coming from love and belonging? Is it coming from power? Is it coming from a need for fun? Is it coming from a need to declare my independence that I'm a human being and I make my own choices? And if you have that mindset as a leader, you can explain so much more to understand, get in the, get in the psyche of your team to understand that what they do, what they do. And then check yourself so that you are less directive and more inspirational. Yeah. And what it helps for me, that model is make sense of the cultures that I've experienced with this podcast. And I've been lucky enough to go into a lot of firms who've achieved, who've created extraordinary cultures, you know, and and through the, through the, through the um, qualities of the, of the leaders who, uh, who are in those organizations. And, and you see that, right. You see people having fun you see people with very high levels of autonomy and it would make sense that one of the reasons those that exist in those cultures is because they're getting those first three needs met right yeah yeah i mean most of us have our survival that almost everyone in the west right have our survival that needs mess and, and most people in the world right now in terms of so much far fewer people in poverty but then yeah just just getting people having feel like they belong and they have that power in terms of I matter is, yeah. is so important. But once you get that, then you can, you can create places where people are having fun and, and they have autonomy. That, that's brilliant, Richard. And I want to add one more thing that I think a lot of people don't always think of. 
And that is about emotion. Whenever we feel an emotion, emotion is trying to tell us something. It's trying to tell us either of a met need or an unmet need. So a positive emotion, happiness, joy, laughter. It's a reward mechanism that's rewarding us for doing something that led to a met need, whether it be fun, whether it be, uh, like I say, uh, freedom. It's, it's rewarding us for a met need. A negative emotion, anger, sadness, frustration. It's actually a signal of an unmet need. And rather than react to the situation, Take some time and ask yourself, why this emotion? Why this emotion now? And what is it trying to tell me about an unmet need? And it might be nothing to do with the current situation that you're angry about. It might be something else that your body is trying to tell you about an unmet need, whether it's survival, love and belonging, power, fun, or freedom. Right. And that... Uh, that... <laughs> I mentioned Henry Stewart earlier, but previous guest, his company, uh, Happy Company, he he has joy as his metric, his main business metric is, you know, yeah. the answer, he monitors the answer to the question, how much joy do you experience at work, right? And that would make sense given what, what you said. If you've got yeah. a high joy score, you've got a lot of people getting a lot of their needs met a lot of the time, right? Yeah. Hold on. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do. It's, it's interesting to me that that model doesn't have, isn't more popular, right? It's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't, doesn't, I've not, it's the first time I've come across it. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's really powerful. It changed my view um, as, as well as Otto Sharma's work. There's a few people that have changed my, the way that I see the world. Simon Sinek is one of those. Uh, Jeff Bloomfield, uh, who goes into deep work around the science of decision making and the science of trust. Martin Seligman, who yeah, studies the deeply positive psychology. Pos- yep. God. Positive psychology and joy and happiness and uh, fulfillment. Um, and then I would say uh, Glasser and Otto Sharma. That, that's the five. They're the five people's work that fundamentally shifted the way I see the world. Right. Is there any, any of, the, of those ideas worth bringing up now um, that it you know be worth you sharing? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on Seligman because uh, I'd, a lot of people are talking about purpose and meaning, and it is really important. Unfortunately, it does sometimes go to purpose anxiety. So anyone out there that is trying to find your purpose in the world and you're struggling with it and you're getting anxiety, have some self-compassion. It takes time. It mm. takes time. It tames, takes work for you to find your purpose and meaning. But when you do, that's where true joy lives. So I want to talk about Seligman's work around what he calls the pleasure life, the good life, and the meaningful life. And what he's been able to measure through all of his work is the pleasure life is when we do things. And, and by the way, I'm not telling people not to have fun. Go out and have fun. But pleasure is something that has a short life, has a short life and a short half-life. Now, and what that means, in fact, a increasingly shorter half-life, it habituates. So whether it's binge-watching something on Netflix or it's, gambling or whatever it is that's bringing you that or it could be out partying with your friends and drinking and I'm, once again i'm not telling you not to do that that is not anything to build your life on because it's short-term pleasure and it goes as soon as that activity is finished and it has an increasingly shorter half-life which means that you need to get the same high you need to do it more often and you need to do it at an increased intensity so that's the pleasure life the good life is when you find yourself doing something where you get into a complete flow state and time seems immaterial, et cetera. It may or may not be virtuous, but it's, it could be anything from playing bridge to uh, might be a chess player or it could be a musician. It may not have a huge life-changing meaning, but it still gives you something that is that flow state where time falls around you. The meaningful life is when you do find purpose and meaning in your world, where you're doing something that helps at least one other human being. And the pleasure that, or sorry, the joy and fulfillment that comes from helping other human beings way outweighs and goes for much longer than anything that you can get from pleasurable activities. So, yeah, I would point people towards Seligman's work. 
And then when you're looking at purpose, remember what I said about another human being. So if some, if you're out there, if you're one of those people that wants to find your purpose, but you can't find it, just ask yourself questions like, what did I do today? What was I good at? And how did I serve another human being today? Mm. And then once you discover it, go, hmm, what would, I happen if, what would happen if I stopped doing that? What would happen if I did more of that? What would happen if I did less with that? And when you start asking yourself these questions, you realize that maybe your purpose was closer to what you're currently doing than what you really thought, and you just mm. needed a different perspective. So I'd say, yeah, Seligman, I strongly encourage people to research um, the meaning for life. The meaningful life, right? Um, yeah, and and that's something. Um, well, you took, we sort of opened the conversation, you know, to some degree in terms of that being a role of the leader. Yeah, and so for 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 a leader, presumably to lead a conversation around purpose uh, with with those that they lead, they need to have done that work themselves. Uh, correct, right? And so a, a great leader is someone that's able to surround themselves with people, right? People that complement their skills. The best way to do that is when a leader is able to articulate with complete clarity their vision, their purpose, their values, and their beliefs. And this has happened countless times in my career, Richard, where I've stood up in a group organization situation, a town hall meeting, whatever the case may be, and I've been able to articulate my vision, my purpose, my values, and beliefs. And then in in fact, the minutes after I finish, but over the following days, you get all of these virtual or physical knocks on the door of people that say, oh, I saw your speech yesterday at the town hall meeting. Do you have any openings on your team? <laughs> right? Talented yeah. people get attracted to you when you're able to do this. And you yeah. get surrounded by people that believe the same, same things that you believe. And when they believe in the things that you believe, they'll then work for you with all of their might, not just for the paycheck, because now mm. they see purpose and meaning in what you're doing and they believe in the worthy cause. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That makes, that makes total sense. One thing that we spoke about in our sort of pre-check for this, and I thought I'd, I'd bring up is, is the, is the kind of check, because you and I both are in the, in, the, in the business of helping individual leaders develop themselves as leaders mm. uh, and, and it's important work. And, and a challenge I got on a recent podcast show, and I, and, and I mentioned this with you, was like, should we just be dropping this idea that our focus should be uh, training individual leaders on becoming better versions of themselves? Is it rather more powerful to think about citizenship, citizenship in the context of an organization? And rather than focus so much on individuals and their qualities and developing them, focus on the rituals of that organization that mm. in and of themselves develop leadership capability just through participation of those, quote, citizens in those practices, you know, uh, you know be it proposing new ideas, be it daily check-ins, be it you know, all of the, of the rituals um, that a lot of high-performing teams engage in. But, uh, you know, I wonder where you sort of land on that spectrum of, is mm. it most important to develop the individual or is it most important to look at the rituals, you know, in the culture of the organization as an access to developing Know, better citizens in, in the organization? Yeah, it's, it's a really tough one because clearly you need both. And I might surprise people with my answer because I spend so much time working with individual leaders. Where the shortcomings come with that is if I've empowered a new and upcoming leader with amazing skills that they want to go back to the workplace, they are now one, one P in a large organization that may or may not be able to infect the rest of them around them. A, a good one will, and, and they will start having a knock-on effect of those around them. But if they return to a toxic culture, that toxic culture may spit them up and chew them out, and they may end up going and working somewhere else, right? So I think without some of that organizational work, the work that I do doesn't have as great an impact as I would like it to have. I love the word rituals that you said. So, and, and it still needs to start with individual leaders for this to even happen. Of but course. Now, yeah, I mean, that's the sort of paradox. Yeah, but, but. Yeah, but it's now, now it's more collective gathering and going, let's have these rituals. Let's have these rituals where we give everyone 
platform so that their voice can be heard and then have the culture that rewards and celebrates the culture that we want to create that doesn't tolerate behavior that is out of lines with the values and beliefs of the organization right so you get the behavior in the organization you get the behavior that you reward that you celebrate and that you tolerate and the tolerate one is actually potentially the most sinister in that one because if you've got an organization where you're trying to create a culture around psychological safety around openness and transparency around promoting ideas you're trying to create that culture and you have someone in the business that is doing the opposite of all those things and that's tolerated no one steps in and does anything about it everyone sees it everyone sees it yeah yeah and then, yeah and then one of two things happens everyone goes well no, i keep on picking on this fictitious person called jim so i hope there's no audience members <laughs> that are getting paranoid here so if they see this jim character who's doing these toxic behaviors that are against the the values and beliefs of the rest of the group and they're getting away with it they either go well if jim can do it i'm going to do it too or they get so incensed because that behavior is against what they believe and what they value that they look for the door mm. so yes we need some organizational work around culture around reward celebrate around what you tolerate what you don't tolerate and you need rituals that allow people to be able to have that speak up culture where they can speak their mind and bring new ideas to the table. Yeah. And I, and I think it's a, I mean, I do think it's a both and because a lot of these yeah. organizations will also invest in coaching and development of their, you know, quote citizens or, 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 yeah. or colleagues to, it's a great you know, question, to develop Christian. their leadership. And I, I, I think it's something that we, you know, in this game of leadership development need to, you know, need yeah, both need to emphasize as well, because it's so important. Like, I think, I don't know what the right balance of proportion of time, but some proportion of your time, I think, as a leader, it's important to be in that architect mode and thinking about what, what are the rituals I can put in place that transcend any individual contribution I might make, but that collectively brings on, you know, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, really good, Richard. It was a wonderful question. Uh, and it's one that we should keep on pressing on for sure. Sure. Um, okay. Is there, is there anything else that, you know, you've, you talked about in the book or, 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 or that you'd like to bring up in this context of, of people becoming better leaders that we've, we've not hit on? I, I think some other ones are the mindset shifts. So keep on thinking about those mindset shifts, so particularly for that first time leader. Um, always remember that what got you here will not get you to where you want to go. It may not even serve you in your current job. So if you were that wonderful software engineer, digital marketer or nurse that I spoke about, what made you successful as an individual contributor is not what is going to make you successful as a leader. So you need to check some of that at the door. In fact, there's a little bit of a funny thing that happens. I see this all the time, Richard. I see people end up doing two jobs. They kind of reach back, whether it's uh, getting back to a comfort zone or whatever the case may be, they find themselves doing large chunks of their old job whilst they start getting to grips with the new job that they've been promoted into. So you've got to be able to let go of what was working for you before and realize that your, your mindset now needs to shift. And along that, there's things like you do not have to be the answer to every question. In fact, that's detrimental. It robs other people of their voice it robs other people of their opportunities if you're the one that's doing things all the time and you're the one that's answering every question and you also need to let go of that it's not about you anymore so if you were a star individual contributor you are probably applauded a lot oh well done you know what a, what a wonderful thing that you did there sally and you put on a pedestal but now your job is actually to create an environment for other people to shine so it's not about your individual contribution anymore. It's about the environment you create. So in, in a contradictory sentence, I apologize up front. It's not about you anymore, but it is all about you. But it's, it's about the environment you're creating, not the work that you do. Yeah. And I actually think I, I seem to recall seeing some research that's done with sales teams. And there's actually a negative correlation between sales performance and, 
as a contributor and performance as a sales manager. <laughs> so oh, okay. if, you, if you were a great oh. sales contributor, you've actually got to work even harder to be uh, a good sales manager. I didn't know that one. That's, oh, I'm going to look for that. That's cool. Yeah. 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 I might be wrong about that, but I seem to recall uh, that, okay. that piece of research somewhere. Yeah. No, but it's a very good point, isn't it? And you have to, you've got to just, I mean, as, as hard as it is, let go of that. Because I, I guess it's back to the Glasser model, right? You're going to get that feeling of power, like I'm contributed, I'm getting attention, I'm feeling valued, if yeah. you go back and do that old contributor role. So, yeah. so it's an easy way to get your needs met. Suddenly, you, you may not be getting that attention and feeling of, of, of value in your leader role. So it, it, from that model, again, it would make sense that people kind of flip back to the old role. Yeah, correct. Yeah, very good point, Richard. Um, Great. Okay. Is that, does this feel like a good place to end there? Is there anything else to, anything else to, uh, to tell us? That was on? spot on. Uh, that was spot on, Richard. I, I'd love the opportunity. Um, uh, I assume you're going to edit what we're doing now, but no, well, no, we don't. I don't. I oh, you don't, don't edit? I, oh, well, I'll, I'll about authenticity, it. right? Yeah. I, I just like, like the opportunity to uh, thank you for coming on the show and, and to point if you, if people want to know more about what we do, uh, but point them towards our, our website, which is uh, mixedbeers.com. Um, the book is out. spell S P I E R S. Correct. Yep. So M I C K. Yeah, correct. M I C K S P I E R S.com. And of course, I'd love uh, people uh, point them towards the book. It's, it's the number one bestseller in six different categories on Amazon. Uh, you're a leader. Now what? And it's funnily, it's written for the first time leader. But the feedback I get from a lot of people, I'm finding uh, people at all stages of their leadership journey are still finding it to be a valuable resource, Richard. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got nuggets out there, especially the glass of work I wasn't familiar with and I've read a television yeah. leadership book. So it's, yeah, oh, brilliant. Yeah. absolutely. Um, great. Well, thanks again. Uh, enjoy your, your evening in uh, the, we should say Filipino, no, F- Philippines countryside. Philippines, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, best of luck. Uh, enjoy your podcast, and and uh, thank you again for the time today. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to First Human dot com